Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, September 9th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, September 12th, 2021. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-host, Emily Scott. Hey, girl. How you doing? Hello. You know, I am doing. I am tired. As I as usual, um, but I am I'm going and okay. uh, yeah and shout out to Jasmine who will not be joining us today but will still be um, in helping our thoughts, us definitely. in our thoughts and will be helping us with the vital work of getting the show actually uh, actually there. to the ears yeah <laughs> so thank you yes, Jasmine absolutely yeah. and um and actually last week we recorded on Wednesday evening, right before the storms hit the area. Yeah. Um, so we didn't really have a chance to talk about that, but you know, I hope everyone out there in the, in, I mean, uh, almost across the entire Eastern seaboard is doing all right. I know the flooding in New York and New Jersey was particularly, um, I don't, I, it, unprecedented. Was, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It was real. It's funny because the um, station that they showed on what a lot of the major news mm-hmm. networks, that's the one by my job, 28th Street, oh, which is so wow. crazy. But right. The water was just like rushing down there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, that's like a insane. movie set. Like, <laughs> it's so crazy. Yeah. And it was real. Um, it was real. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there is some assistance. Uh, emergency financial assistance for people. That would be great. So New Yorkers who have been displaced, including uninsured families, will be eligible for funds for housing assistance, as well as crisis counseling, unemployment assistance, home repairs, and legal services. Okay. Uh, Yeah. And that's specifically the New York, uh, now Governor Hochul, um, has uh, announced his federal approval for major disaster declaration in wake of Ida flooding. NY.gov slash Ida. It looks like that is the place to go to get for a ton of resources about, you know, whatever you may need right now post Ida, um, yeah. where you can find. Yeah. That's good information. Thank you. I'm going to share that with some people that maybe yeah. be able to use that. Yeah. All right. So yeah. on the docket for today's episode, we're going to kick it off with a 20 year memory mm-hmm. um, and memorial to 9-11, um, where we are as New Yorkers, where we were. So I think that'll be a nice piece, um, definitely. We're also mm-hmm. going to get into the national news, which comes from the Ahmad Aubrey case. The former district attorney was arrested in an indictment with connection to the case. So that is a little fiery as well. Um, over in France, we're going to have our world news segment talking about free contraception for women um, age 25 and under. And then we have some good news about an affordable apartment building in New Orleans that kept the lights on with solar power during Hurricane Ida. So we got a lot in store for you today. We're going to go ahead and kick it off with our local news segment. Emily, you're up. All right. Yep. So as you mentioned, Teresa, um, this uh, we're dedicating our local story this week to the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Um, so that will this is going to air September twelfth Sunday. So yesterday on airing will have been that day, um, which was an event that would go on to completely reshape in many ways the whole New York City, the whole United States, and in many ways much the whole world. Um, there's been innumerable pieces written about the anniversary, and and most anniversaries, and the tenth anniversary had a ton as well. Um, and I'm going to, cho- I chose to focus on one of them that I found particularly poignant. 
um, is a story, a New York Times story by Dan Barry titled, What Does It Mean to Never Forget? 20 years after September 11th, a look at what we hold onto and what we choose to let go. Quote, in his mind, Michael Regan should have been down there. He should have had the guts. A longtime New York City employee who became first deputy fire commissioner after the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001, Mr. Regan coordinated scores of funerals and memorial services and helped hundreds of shattered families. Still, he could not shake the guilt. He should have been there down at the World Trade Center. After a couple of months, Mr. Regan finally shared his remorse with a stunned fire department colleague who told him that he had been there. He had helped transport the bodies of the first deputy fire commissioner, Bill Feehan, and the chief of department, Peter Ganchi, to the morgue on First Avenue. Don't you remember? Looking back, Mr. Regan said his mental block must have been a way to cope with the instant loss of thousands, including many close friends. It was a safety mechanism, he said. I saw horrible things that day, and I didn't want to think about those things. 20 years later, the command to never forget retains its power, jolting us into the past whenever we see it on a hat or flag or the back of a passing car on the Belt Parkway. For all its slogan-like simplicity, these uh, twinned words seem seem freighted with the complexities of guilt, obligation, and even presumption, as if we could ever forget. But now that an entire generation has been born since the day, versions of the question posed to Mr. Regan might be asked of all of us who lived it in some way. Two planes hijacked by Al-Qaeda, piercing the north and south towers of the World Trade Center. A third slamming into the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia. A fourth crashing in an open field outside Shanksville, PA, all in less than 90 minutes. What exactly do you remember? What stories do you tell when a casual conversation morphs into a therapy session? What stories do you keep to yourself? And what instantly transport you, transports you back to that deceptively sunny Tuesday morning? Quote, when I hear never forget for 9-11, my question is, my next question is never forget what? Said Charles B. Stone, an associate professor, professor of psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Never forget the international dynamics that set the stage. The homeland insecurities that followed, including the harassment of American citizens simply because they were Muslim, the months of seemingly nonstop funerals, the two decades of war and bloodshed. Perhaps the closest answer is never forget that it occurred, Dr. Stone said, but it's the little details that will be forgotten. Quote, of course, the call to never forget can also be interpreted, interpreted as another honorable attempt to preserve some faint sense of the day's many emotions. Honorable, but perhaps futile, against the ceaseless rub of the passing years, the vagaries of memory. Quote, in the first days after the September 11th attacks, a team of scholars around the country set out to capture the moment's flashbulb memories, the vivid, enduring mental snapshots formed at the instant of historical import, such as the bombing of, uh, such as the bombing of Pearl Harbor or the assassination of John F. Kennedy. They asked more than 3,000 people a few questions, including... Where were you when you learned about the terrorist attacks? In New York, graduate students working on the study set up tables and handed out surveys at Union Square and Washington Square, where thousands had gathered in the, in the days and weeks after the attacks just to be with one another. Moments of communal mourning also now slipping from memory. A year later, the researchers asked the same questions of many of the same people, only to find that 40% of the memories had changed. 
A man now saying that he was in the office when he learned of the attacks might previously have said that he had been on a train. These altered recollections were consistent with similar studies done in connection with other historical events, according to Elizabeth A. Phelps, a professor of neuroscience at Harvard University who worked on the 9-11 memory study. What distinguished the memories of 9-11 when compared with ordinary autobiographical memories was the extreme confidence that people had developed in their altered remembrances, which by the first anniversary had begun to concretize. Concretize. Um, The author of this story also writes about the things he remembered from that day. Quote, I remember the messages of grief, anger, and and faint hope scrawled in the dust that had settled on the surrounding buildings. Scrawled with the tips of fingers. I remember being determined to chronicle these messages before the power washers came. The towers will rise again. Vernon Cherry, call home. God be with you, Dana. Love, Mom. Quote, inevitably, someday there will be no one alive with a personal narrative of September 11th. Inevitably, the emotional impact of the day will fade a little bit, and then a little bit more, as time transforms a visceral lived experience into a dry history lesson. This transformation has already begun. Ask any high school history teacher. Oh, I got a little emotional reading that one out loud uh, more than I did when I was uh, collecting that information from the article, mostly quotes. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, Do you remember where you were that day, Teresa? Absolutely. I was in undergrad working in the housing department at the University of Cincinnati. And I remember I had just got to work and was getting settled in and turned on the Google and I just seen an image of the plane hit the building like it was just there. I think it probably was maybe 9.15, 9.30. And we all were just kind of sitting there paralyzed, like, what is happening? And phones start ringing, and people were calling across college, and everybody had to go home. And, yeah, it was a day. It mm-hmm. was a day. I think that's the first day I realized that the United States was a part of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like some mm-hmm. small town girl from Ohio. I was just mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, it's a whole world out there. Mm. Things really changed for me after that in life. What yeah. about you? Um, so I was in fifth grade. And um, so I grew up outside the city. Um, my town is definitely, is the suburbs. Um, it's a commuter town to New York City. It's sort of like the end of the bus line for the commuter town. But um, okay. de- people definitely lived there and commuted to the city. And um, I remember my fifth grade teacher, apparently her, and so this article was really interesting because it, it made me like the things I remembered so vividly and how, you know, maybe I'm, I might be misremembering some of that stuff. But, um, so my memory is that we were in class and the principal comes in and asks her to step into the hallway. And then a few minutes later, she's like back in the classroom in tears, um, and horrible tears and like grabs her stuff and sorts of sort of like heads out. Um, and I, I guess later on we found out, I remember a, I was like, what's going on? And a friend was like something, she was saying something about her family and um, her, her husband ended up being fine luckily, but okay. I remember him that he was a firefighter, but my dad <laughs> corrected me and said he actually he worked in the towers or near the towers or something, but he had been, he had been fine. Um, which is good, which is really good. Um, and I remember my, my dad picked me up from school early and, and took me somewhere to grab food and kind of tell me, um, try and explain what had happened. And I like, couldn't, 
it's hard to grasp. Like at that age, like my dad, you know, telling a child the mechanics of a a plane crashing into a building and it's, you don't really, you can't really grasp what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was like, I don't really understand what, why that, you know, why is every, everybody so, so, you know, upset. Um, and obviously it became very clear very quickly over the next days and weeks and months and years, um, what that actually meant. And I was pretty shielded from, from the images. Um, I don't know if I've ever actually watched the footage of it happening. I know it played on TV a lot, but I didn't, I wasn't really watching the news then. Um, yeah, I definitely seen it like that, that, that just blew my mind. I mean, I just like, you know, college student log on the computer, do do do, go to Google and boom, it was like the, the picture. And it it was only a few minutes after it had happened too, which Mm -hmm. is so alarming. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, it was just, yeah. I mean, it didn't actually show it hit. It just showed it going towards the building, you know, Mm -hmm. and just the Mm -hmm. simple thought of that was just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the way the world's changed, I mean, I, I found another article and decided not to, you know, this one was, was enough, but the new NYPD, um, much of their surveillance, surveillance equipment and, and techniques that were developed for terrorism, tracking terrorists is, you know, being employed against all like regular police, police work these days as well. So that's all sort of become, filtered into one another. Um, I know the 24 hour news cycle that's become just a, you know, a normal part of our lives. And I mean, maybe like social media would have led us there anyway. Yeah. That, that all came out of, you know, the, everyone couldn't stop watching the news at that time. And then even when that news stopped, you know, the the networks wanted to fill the void because that meant dollars, but yeah. Well, definitely Afghanistan. Yeah. All of it everything's happening right now in this moment too, you know, like it's all so Mm -hmm. current and 20 years later and present definitely full circle moment, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, our prayers go out to all of the families that may Mm -hmm. have lost people are sad during this time. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, our love goes out to all the people that were lost in New York city and beyond. And yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a memory. It's a day. Take it easy, people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Emily, for that um, commemorative story. I like the way you did that. It was definitely more narrative and it it gave it a different approach. (laughs) Yeah. And shout out to the author of that story, too, um, Dan Barry. He did a great job. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to go ahead and take our first music break before we go on to our uh, national news story and gonna take it easy with some earth wind and fire this is september we'll be right back
Radio Free Brooklyn is sponsored in part by Peters Valley School of Craft. Peters Valley presents the Fall Craft Fair at the Sussex County, New Jersey Fairgrounds on September 25th and 26th. Visitors can browse and buy handcrafted pieces from over 100 exhibiting artists. Ticket sales support Peters Valley School of Craft, fostering creative thinking through fine craft education, programs, and events. Tickets and more information at petersvalley.org. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. So I want to give a shout out, not necessarily a shout out, just a um, an update on this wonderful partnership we've been having on the show with our NYU team. We've been talking about a lot of environmental issues on the show. I know you've heard of the scientists and doctors that we've been working with over the past couple of months to get you more um, information just about what it's like in New York City and just some of the different things that we're all going through um, as we come in and out of this panorama. But yeah, I will be hosting and facilitating and just helping um, the team of scientists that will be a part of this symposium. It is the sixth annual NYU Langone Health Disparity Symposium, and it is between Tuesday and Friday, um, October 19th through 22nd. Um, The title of the symposium is Fostering Authentic Community and Academic Partnerships that Use Science to Address Environmental Harm and Injustice. And it is a wonderful time for us to be able to just learn from all of the scientists that have looked at how our lives have changed since the pandemic happened and some of the things in our environment that we really need to focus on and pay attention to that affect all of us. So I hope that you will join us. Uh, definitely check the NYU Langone Health uh, Disparity Symposium out. You can check it out on the NYU website and get tickets to the event, but I definitely think it's um, going to be a great opportunity for us to just really learn about it. Emily, make sure you check in to the symposium. Hello. Yes, I certainly, (laughs) I was going to say, I jump in and say, I'm so excited for, uh, for you to have the opportunity to be a part of that. Did you say that you're, you're helping to facilitate? I I don't know if I heard. Yeah, I'm going to be hosting the event. So I will be helping to just facilitate the discussion across, you know, the different disparities that we've uh, learned about and understood now that we've been in the pandemic and all Mm -hmm. of the injustice that happened last year in our communities. It's just a time for us to really look at what's happening to the environment in your Mm -hmm. city, Mm -hmm. in your neighborhood, Mm -hmm. on the trains and around New York City Mm -hmm. and beyond, you know. Um, So important. Yeah, we don't get a lot of spaces to discuss those things. So I'm really grateful to Judy and all the people that uh, we've been working with from NYU Langone to just bring you guys that information. We'll have a couple more um, guests coming up this month, right? Mm -hmm. We have a couple of different uh, interviews coming up later this month. Yep, yep, we do. Towards, I think, two weeks in a row at the end of the month, we have some interviews coming up, which should be really good. So stay tuned. Yeah, we'll definitely post it up on our social media. Yeah. Cool. So we're going to go ahead and hop into the national news segment. Um, This story I'm actually happy to bring to you, not happy, but it is a follow-up to um, the Ahmaud Aubrey story that I covered when it happened last year. Uh, Definitely an interesting twist. And yeah, so it comes from CNN.com. And the title of the story is Former District Attorney Arrested After Indictment in Connection with Ahmaud Aubrey Investigation. The author of this story is Martin Savage and Angela Burajas. 
A former district attorney in Georgia has been charged after allegedly interfering with the arrest of a man involved in the 2020 shooting of 25-year-old Ahmaud Arbery. Former Brunswick District Attorney Jackie Johnson has been indicted on charges of violating her oath as a public officer and obstructing a police officer. She was arrested on Wednesday morning and released on a $10,000 bond. According to the indictment, both charges are in connection with Johnson's alleged actions surrounding the investigation of the fatal shooting of Aubrey while he was jogging through Glenn County subdivision on February 23, 2020. Gregory McMichael, his son Travis McMichael, and neighbor William Bryan are charged with murder in connection with Aubrey's death. The three pled not guilty. Also, according to the indictment, Johnson, on the day of the shooting, prevented two Glenn County police officers from exercising their duties by, quote, directing that Travis McMichael should not be placed under arrest, contrary to the laws of the said state, the good order, peace and dignity thereof. Johnson is also accused of violating her district attorney oath by showing favor and affection to Greg McMichael during the investigation. Uh, CNN has attempted to reach out to Johnson for comment in an interview with a local radio station in Jessup in May. She said repeatedly that she denied any wrongdoing and defended her actions. The charge of violating the oath of a public officer is a felony that carries a sentence of one to five years in prison. The charge of obstruction and hindering the law enforcement officer is a misdemeanor that carries up to 12 months. The indictment additionally states that Johnson sought the assistance of Waycross Judicial Circuit District Attorney George E. Barnhill, and after recusing herself, allegedly recommended Barnhill take over as prosecutor without disclosing that she sought his assistance about the case. Johnson recused herself from Aubrey's probe shortly after the shooting, citing Gregory McMichael, a 20-year-old tenure, 20-year tenure, as an investigation with the Brunswick District Attorney. Barnhill later recused himself from the case as well, citing his connection with the defendants. Johnson lost re-election for her district attorney seat last November. The Aubrey investigation was eventually appointed to the Cobb County District Attorney Office two months after the shooting, following involvement from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Lee Merritt, an attorney for an attorney for Aubrey's family, told CNN's Chris Coma on Thursday that the indictment is a relief for the family who has been, uh, quote, left in the dark for months after the shooting. At a press conference, um, Aubrey's family and lawyers applauded the indictment as well. Uh, quote, what this means for us first is a signaling to other prosecutors that if they are not forthcoming with the evidence, if they show, somehow participate or put a finger on the scale of justice, they will face consequences themselves. We set a precedent that prosecutors now have to bear responsibility for the injustices on top of the tragedies where we see too many of our children taken away from us without accountability. And that quote was from the family's attorney, Ben Crump. During a virtual press conference on Friday, Wanda Cooper Jones, who is Aubrey's mother, uh, said that Johnson should serve time in jail. She said she didn't pull the trigger, but she's just as much to hold accountable as the three guys who actually did this to Ahmad. Uh, while she was very appreciative of the way things are going, she said, but at the end of the day, Ahmad is never coming home. So this story um, is interesting. You know, we don't hear a lot sometimes in stories of police violence and racial injustice about um, 
the people who handle these cases. And as the district attorney involving herself with what is going on in this case can really tell us like, you know, things were already backed up during COVID in regards to courts and everything that was happening. Uh, you know, nobody knew what was going on. So this happened in the middle of like everything. There were protests, there was COVID-19, we was locked up. Like this, this case was um, really important. And to find out that the whole time the district attorney was involved and connected to these people, it's, it's, it's nuts. Yeah, I, I remember a little bit around when this was all happening that there was a lot of information coming out about the local uh, authorities, I guess is the word, like people in charge essentially avoiding like trying to keep the perpetrators from like trouble I do remember that vaguely but it's been a long time do you yeah right sorry you unmuted yeah no I'm yeah. you're right you're right definitely I mean that was one of the things about this case is that the one of the guys involved in the case was connected to the police department or he had worked for right. them and was retired um right. so his connection definitely has something to do with how how this case you know, went out. Unfolded. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's, yeah, but it's, it's been a long time. I feel like since I've heard an update um, and I think it's, it's rare to see people be held accountable for this sort of um, like insidery, uh, you know, fucked up miscarriages of justice. Yeah. Um, it's really rare. And like, I, and you know, it's rare enough that the people keep doing it in those positions of power because they think that they're like, you know, they're, they're impossible to touch. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think it's, it's pretty amazing to hear when that isn't the case, when someone actually has to be held accountable for their actions. Um, also this person, what, what was her name again? It's a, it's a girl, right? Yes. Um, okay. Just a second. Yeah. I mean, I also... Her like last this name is, is Johnson, for sure. Johnson. I, I also... But then I also, like, as someone who's really tuned into, like, the... Jackie Johnson. Of, Jackie Johnson. As someone who's also, like... I mean, I, I tend to... I feel that I often... When it's, like... The fact that it's a, it's a woman is also, like, well, of course. Like, you know... <laughs> <laughs> it's easy it's easy to lock you know and, and that's obviously not always true but I remember that happened like one of the first times I heard of a cop getting um indicted for the killing of a, an unarmed black person was also like a woman um which isn't to say that they aren't equally as guilty but just the fact that you know a court is able to actually um hold them accountable when it's a woman like it's I just I do notice that I know that's not always only it's not only women who get held accountable for those actions but, um, but and it's nor so. it's norm is normally women though, right and rightfully right and rightfully so it's just like well it's obviously it's easy for people to believe a woman's guilt you know what I mean like or like like fuck her right and and but yeah like fuck her and you know other things too like you know we've talked about qualified immunity and how they ended that in New York City as well right um and that's, you know, supposed to be the new wave. We're hoping that this is something that travels across the country and people start to be able to hold law enforcement people and government officials accountable. Because that that stuff really, you know, that those laws that prevent them mm -hmm. from being indicted is is the reason why we don't hear stories like this. Mm -hmm. You know, this really just made me think, like, how many people have people working on the inside? I mean, would that be everybody? Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
I'm know, not on the I inside, just, so I I'm not on the inside yeah. either. But you know, it's just it's just I'm I'm happy this is bring being brought to light. I just you know it's a different type of justice. You know, I'm always seeking justice for something shit. Yeah. But I'm just <laughs> you know um yeah it it it, get, it sometimes it's deeper than the surface level of these stories. You know. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so yeah, so we hope that you know we see. Um, what happens on this case because mm-hmm. the indictment is one thing but how she will be charged obviously mm-hmm. we'll see how that goes but yep you know it's yep, a little yep. piece of justice for you on this sunday yep. <laughs> cool. uh, all right so we're gonna go ahead and oops take our next music break um this is a cool little jazz track you know i like to give you some jazz on sunday mornings it's one of my favorite things to do so i hope you like it too it's mm-hmm. by an artist who calls himself anomaly he is a Canadian producer, and the name of the track is Notre Dame, eh, I guess, EST, something like that. Notre Dame EST <laughs> by Anomaly. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back to Objections to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, Emily, what you got for us? Yeah, so just a couple updates from the station. Or not updates, just reminders. Um, So Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. 
Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org donate. Also, if you're an Amazon shopper and would like to donate in a way that costs nothing to you, go to radiofreebrooklyn.com Amazon and register RFB as your Amazon Smile charity. Every time you shop, a portion of your purchase benefits Radio Free Brooklyn. Also, finally, uh, the Radio Free Brooklyn has a newsletter. Please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash newsletter. And back to you, Teresa. Teresa, you're muted. I don't know if you... Yeah, about that. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you for that, Emily. Thank you for those updates from the station. All right. So for the world news story, we are hopping over to France, one of my favorite places in the world. Um, And this story is uh, quite interesting. Uh, So it comes from... Well, the New York Times and the title of the story is France to offer free contraception to women up to 25. The government responded to what it said was a decline in the use of contraceptives among young women. Um, and the author of the story is Isabella Croix and Leonton Gelois. So France will begin offering free contraceptives for women up to the age of 25 starting next year to help young women with the financial cost of protecting against pregnancy, the country's top health official said on Thursday. The government said it would set aside about $25 million to pay for all types of contraceptives, including IUDs and consultations on their use. Uh, The announcement was a stark opposition to much of the debate over women's reproductive rights in other countries. As you guys know, in the United States, uh, a near total ban on abortion in Texas came into effect last week, making it the most restrictive state in the U.S. Uh, Poland's government implemented a ban on almost all abortions in January, which also spurred uh, widespread protests. In Mexico, however, the Supreme Court decriminalized abortion on Tuesday through states would still have to apply for the ruling. Family planning clinics in France uh, and women in France welcomed the new measure, with some saying they hope for more, even more coverage. Quote, we want free contraceptions for everyone, said Marianne Nawasi, who is the director of the National Confederation of Family Planning. She and other groups also call for an inclusive education campaign around sex and contraceptions. In France, the government funds public health care, but patients must pay up front for prescriptions and appointments. Families can also opt to buy additional private coverage for themselves and their dependents. But many households' health plans stop coverage for dependents in their 20s, uh, Mr. Varan said. Women in France are already able to claim partial or full reimbursement for contraceptives under private insurance plans and be reimbursed for the cost of abortions. According to a 2019 government figures, women who experience, women who experiencing the low standards of living in France were significantly more likely to terminate a pregnancy than those who had a median standard of living. Under the new measure, all contraceptives cost for women under 25 would be reimbursed. The health ministry said. Still paying up front um, would not be viable for some people. It's unbearable that young women cannot protect themselves and they cannot have contraceptions if they choose to do so because it's too expensive, said Oliver Varan, the country's health minister, 
um, and pu- he's a public broadcaster as well. The government had noticed a decline in the use of contraceptives among a certain number of women, he said. The age 25 was chosen as a threshold because it is the age that corresponds in terms of economic life, social life, and income with more autonomy. Young adults face complicated situations, um, either because they're students or they have no money. So because they are entitled to their parents' medical insurance and some form of birth control can be exercised over their choices. So some form of control, whether it's their parents or whether they don't have their parents. um, I think that's what they're trying to say that obviously that's not their choice all the time. Other people ask bigger questions like why women still primarily bore the burden of contraception and question the age cutoff. In the end, the responsibility for contraceptives will fall even more on women who can be told that they have no reason not to take the pill. And that comes from uh, Celine Saran. She's a 20-year-old. She's a student who added that the measure reduced economic inequalities, but not gender inequalities. So this is a very interesting story because obviously um, across the world, you know, many people uh, have different opinions on people's access to having health care in general, especially for young people. You know, I think we've seen a lot during the pandemic that this is kind of a topic that was not really discussed and not really um, brought up in the news. As you know, I work in higher education. So I think about these things often. I remember when I was an undergrad and the insurance that I had. So it's kind of one of those things that's, you know, not on our radars, but should be. I have one more segment from the story. Uh, Though still popular oil contraceptions use has fallen in recent years following media coverage in 2012 about a young woman who suffered a stroke that she blamed on the Herbert on a version of the pill. The risk of blood clots as a side effect from the newer pill was comparatively low. Though still popular belief, oral contraceptions use has fallen in recent years following media coverage about in 2012, a young woman who suffered a stroke that she blamed on a version of the pill. Still, health insurers stopped reimbursing people for the higher risk pill. And analysts said that in years after women turned to other forms of birth control methods, younger women under 30 in particular are more often choosing condoms as long active reproduction contraceptives. And they're using uh, IUDs over, over, over oral contraceptives, according to a 2016 survey of about 4,000 women from the public health of France. So, yeah. I know that was a lot. Um, I know you kind of worked in this industry a little bit previously, Emily. So I would love to hear how you feel about this. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So yeah, I was um, a menstrual health educator for a nonprofit um, for a while. And so this, these things are definitely like very near and dear um, to my heart. I couldn't believe my ears when I heard you say that France will reimburse someone for the cost of an abortion. Like my goodness. Whoa. Oh right? my God. Could you even imagine that in the United no. States? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, when I was reading it, that's why I was like, all forms of contra- oh, contraceptives. It's kind of wild when you think about wild. it. Like this is like it's a medical procedure. Yeah. Like, yes. yes. The red tax on women is a serious uh, economical issue, economic issue that we don't talk about a lot. Red tax? The red tax. That's what I call it. The tax oh, on being like- a woman. Oh yeah. Right? Well, I've heard pink tax a lot. Oh, yes, Red tax. Pink tax. It's I'm dramatic. Just in a mood today. <laughs> the more dramatic, yeah. But yeah. Um, Sorry. The pink yeah. tax. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean it's huge. It's so big, and you know, in the, in the United States, like you mentioned, like the new. I mean, the United, like uh, the state, like the the religious, like crazy. Texas. Around, okay. Around, Texas. Yeah. 
around banning. abortion in this country and and birth control. It's like, but it's also like you know if you if you're gonna try to try and outlaw abortion, how about you like up the education on on sex and you offer like it's it's like they just want to pretend that sex doesn't happen. And unless, you know what I mean? Unless you're going to have a baby, but of course only women ever bear the brunt of that. Right. Um, at the end of the day. Can you imagine, can you imagine if women Mm -hmm. in, in in the United States throughout college could have free birth control? Mm -mm. No. Like just, just, just that let's just, let's just call it that. Can you imagine? Mm -mm. No, I cannot. Also, how about just like comprehensive sex education, like nationwide? Exactly. Right. Like everyone. My goodness. I am um, and an actual also, effort, an actual effort yeah. to do it, you know, not yeah. like a, a, a one human sexuality class in undergrad, yeah. which is what most of us get. And then some weird yeah. person in, in high school trying to teach us sex ed. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. And I, I mean, so I also want to note, though, you brought up that really interesting additional point about people, op- you know, women starting to opt out of oral co- hormone, like or yeah. oral contraception. So I actually... That is something that I, in my personal life, have definitely um, taken into account. So I have history of breast cancer in my family, mm-hmm. and so, and so the horm like there, there. I mean, I've, I've, like, I believe I've, I saw a study within the last few years, but it sort of just backs up stuff that people have known that it can influence your risk of breast cancer. Um, I, everyone, anyone listening should definitely do their own research on that though. Like I don't have anything in front. I don't have the actual study in front of me right now, but I just know that, um, you know, like it, it does affect your hormones. It definitely, like they all come with risks of blood clots. Um, and there's, you know, there's some women or some menstruators and, you know, that are starting to have these conversations and it is really tricky because, you know, oral contraceptive was a huge, like, you know, women in the 20th century were finally able to, you know, to some degree control their own destinies with that. Right. But then also on the flip side, it's like, so, but, but then it's like the way it's pushed as such a primary option for that, you know, without considering, okay, but is, is, is messing with my menstrual cycle for years and years on end. Is that right? That's the other layer. That's yeah. the other layer. Yeah. Yeah. Because men don't have to make that choice or very rarely do. I think there are some, you know, I, I have, again, I have to look this up. I believe there are like, or they were, they were studying male birth control, like oral contraceptive and men were like, oh, I hate the way this makes me feel. So they stopped the study. I, that, that's anecdotal. Wow. I, I would look. love to hear to, more about that. I'm going to Google that as soon as we get off. That's interesting. Yeah. I have to look that up more, but it's like, okay, so women just are just assumed that they, they're going to do that. Right. But men are like, whoa, it's like, well, that's how we feel all this time. So yeah, anyway. it's like, it's like a part of our lives. And I, and sometimes yeah. I think, you know, the way that they push contraceptives on you when you're in high school, it's like, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that's definitely like a form of you know, sterilization, pop, you know, population mm-hmm. control. We don't think about things like this, but it, mm-hmm. it's real. Right. Yeah. And the reality that, you know, if most it's not your choice. Yeah. Right. Right. And just, just the thought that just last week in Texas, Oop, you muted yourself just last week in Texas, they, you know, banned abortions after six weeks, you mute yourself again, Teresa. You're really on a roll there. What the hell is going on? I don't even know. Let me take my hand off the keys. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's um, you know, that's definitely an interesting thing. I, I think mm-hmm. it's, I think it's interesting how 
depending on where you are in the U.S., this this dialogue about a woman's right to choose mm-hmm. anything about themselves uh, still varies in 2021. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the fucking future, and we're still letting having other people tell us what we can do with our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just a very interesting concept. You know, not trying to offend anybody. Even if I do, the reality is all of us are human, and I believe mm-hmm. that people should have a choice what they want to do to their bodies. Period. Mm-hmm. Point blank. That's just how I feel. But yep. the reality that they are giving young women an opportunity to have a choice about their life and have education about their bodies, you know, definitely think this is a great mm-hmm. step. One thing I would love to see is them to implement other practices of um, healthcare for women from different cultures, because I think we're so consumed with the Western concept of how we handle a woman's body mm-hmm. in this country. We could really learn a lot from, you know, traditional, um, ways of caring for women in society and and caring for women in that way when it comes to reproduction and just uh, that whole portion of our healthcare. I just think that it'd be interesting to have conversations about doulas and, you know, natural Mm -hmm. healing and yoni cleanses and freaking, you know, dietal changes that you can help with your hormones so that you don't necessarily have to take medication. If somebody introduced me to Queen Afua when I was in high school, I would have been straight by now. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, she has a wonderful book called Sacred Woman. I think everybody should get it. It's a natural um, healing book for women and the womb space. And she's a natural Mm -hmm. healer. But just things like that, like give us options to learn about ways to take care of ourselves that don't include medicine or contraceptives in general. Right. And a lot of those things, you know, haven't, had many studies around them, particularly because historically, you know, women's health has been ignored. Taboo. Taboo. Or just like, you know, when when any sort of medical studies historically for, for most of, you know, at least modern history has just been men, right? And we're assuming that men will fit the women's, it'll affect women the same way it affects men. And that is just not the case at all. So there's just hasn't been a ton of I don't know if it's financial backing or just like research around women's health in general, comparatively to men. Um, yeah. So all of that for sure. Well, there's definitely an opportunity for us to have more conversations about this. There's, you know, a lane to, to be ran in America to have these sort of adjustments to our everyday lives. And with all the advancements and the, ch- the changes in the laws that have been happening, I feel that there's a need for us to focus a little bit more on women's rights and mm-hmm. just the the idea of equality for all people in the United States. So uh, why this is a world story definitely really makes me think about what it means to have access and be free, you know, to be able to make decisions and, and just have a little bit more ease in this life. Mm-hmm. Um, but shout out to friends for making some progressive F changes to the way that mm-hmm. uh, people think about women's rights. Yeah. All right, y'all. I know I've been talking for a long time. I am so sorry. But we got some good news coming for you. So, Emily, what is up? We do. Well, this is sort of a double whammy good news, I'd say. um, Yay! I love it when that happens. Me too. (laughs) So, my story comes from a September 2nd Fast Company article by Adele Peters titled, In New Orleans, a solar microgrid is keeping lights on in this affordable apartment building. Well, the rest of... Sorry. While the rest of the neighborhood is dark, the residents at the St. Peter apartments still have power. Can it be a model for more resilient architecture? The article explains, quote, in the wake of Hurricane Ida, thousands of utility workers are scrambling to bring power back on in Louisiana. 
and some residents in the direct path of the storm may have to wait weeks for that to happen. In New Orleans, a natural gas plant that was supposed to provide emergency power failed. But at one affordable apartment building in the city, the lights are on because of its solar microgrid. On top of the building, the first net zero apartment complex in the state, 450 solar panels send electricity to a battery storage system in the parking lot. Though the system needed a repair after the storm, which was delayed because roads were closed, the power started flowing again on Tuesday as the rest of the neighborhood was still dark. It came back online and we were able to give people almost eight hours of electricity running off the battery, says Lauren Avioli, the director of housing development at SBP, the nonprofit behind the 50-unit building called the St. Peter Apartments. The microgrid, which came online when the building opened in early 2020, has already been tested multiple times through Hurricane Zeta and Winter Storm Uri. Both times, the grid's battery system successfully kicked in and the power switched over when the grid went down. Quote, even when the city isn't dealing with a disaster, the system helps build resilience. Half of the apartments in the mixed income building are prioritized for veterans. Many are transitioning out of homeless shelters or recovery centers. Affordability is key and the solar panels can help offset electricity costs. It's not just post-disaster emergency power, she says. It's also helping people at the property save money on a blue sky day because we can use some of the energy that's being generated by the solar, solar panels to run the building. By doing that, we're not pulling all of our power off the city grid. And so we're not charging the tenants for all of the, kilo, all the kilowatts that they're using because obviously what's coming from the solar panels is free. Of course, using solar energy also helps support resilience because it reduces emissions and climate change is making hurricanes like Ida stronger and more damaging. Quote, the nonprofit, which was founded after Hurricane Katrina, thinks about resilience broadly. The apartment building has managers that work to build community, so residents have a support system in place when disasters happen. During, during the current disaster, the managers are also helping residents connect with emergency aid. Quote, the nonprofit wants to install similar systems in other developments. It's a model that should be widely replicated, Avioli says. Yeah, so I love this story because it shows not only a successful example of sustainable energy outperforming more harmful energy sources, uh, but also the fact that it's in a building where, you know, many historically marginalized members of the community are benefiting, um, which is something that you almost never hear about. So very cool. It's not just rich people benefiting from this, you know. Very, very cool. Almost some solar panel shit. Mm -hmm. I think it would just be nice to be under the light and warmth of the sun. Just in general. You know? <laughs> well, yeah. Just absorb it, yeah. I love that this is like, you know, something that, you know, was connected to the storms. I think we mm -hmm. all need to start thinking about this shit. And yep. like some reality. You know what I mean? Like what yeah. is sustainable living and how can we protect ourselves and sustain ourselves in the midst of not just like, you know, the the woes of being an American, being a woman, being black, being white, mm -hmm. being Jewish, being green, brown, mm -hmm. and sad and happy, depressed, or just like overwhelmed, mm -hmm. right? But mm -hmm. like in the real sort of connectivity, like how can you live in a way to make your life better and sustain mm -hmm. your energy, sustain your resources? So I love hearing stories like this that, you know, the shit is real, y'all. Mm -hmm. You can do it. You just have to mm -hmm. be committed to really making an impact in your own personal way. Mm -hmm. So let's all invest in some solar energy, shall we? Mm -hmm. And also, yeah, your own personal way, but also, um, you know, expanding beyond that, advocating for the people at the top who really have the power 
to make big changes too. Um, We're almost done with the show, but yeah, the myth of personal responsibility to end climate change, blah, blah, blah. But this is a great example of like that sort of like local impact, right? Working within your community to make changes that are really effective right now. Yeah. um, That really help other people in the local community is also really. And looking for opportunities to do so as well. Yeah. Because we got to be like on the, on the hunt for things like that. Cause yeah. that's really how you make a difference. So totally cool. Great story. Well, mm-hmm. that's it, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of objection to the rule. You can catch all of our older episodes on radiofreebrooklyn.org on the radio free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Please keep listening up for more independent Brooklyn media. We are going to play you out with our last song of the day. And this was just fun. It's called Love, Sweet Love, and it's by Little Mix. We'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Uh, I've been waiting patiently like all my life. Yeah. Nobody ever seems to get it right. It's like I'm the only one who knows just what I like. What can I say? I just can't help it. Tonight I'm feeling selfish. Uh. Tonight I'm feeling selfish What I do should have faced you know